what makes this important and really meaningful is that we're telling the stories that are hard to tell, but they're also the stories that are hard to hear. And in having the courage to face up to these as, as participants, we, we hope that as listeners, you have the courage to face up to your complicity and really take ownership of this policy that we're going to be describing and uh, take ownership of that as an American. Over the next two hours, you'll hear highlights from the second day of testimony from Winter Soldier, Iraq and Afghanistan. Winter Soldier 2008, which took place at the National Labor College in Silver Springs, Maryland, was organized by Iraq Veterans Against the War. The following are edited excerpts of the day's broadcast, which was anchored by KPFA's Amy Allison and Aaron Glantz. These events happen in our name, and each and every single one of you are responsible for this as well. I'll never forget this. There was a very young PFC, I believe. He was standing in the back of the pickup truck, and as they rolled by, he lifted one of the decapitated heads in front of me, and he, he basically said, we really screwed these guys up, didn't we? So my first question to the, the people who were training us on how to do this was, you know, how do, how, how do they understand? I mean, they don't speak English. And he said, well, they're just like animals, they're just like dogs. If you keep yelling at them, it doesn't matter what language you're yelling at them in, they're going to get the point. The cultural competency training that we received can be best summed up in a sentence. Don't touch the people of Iraq's left hand. They wipe their ass with it. And that's what we got. While we all have responsibility for racism and its roots are incredibly deep, it really does uh, come from the top. And I looked at my sergeant, and I was like, Sergeant, these, these aren't the men that we're looking for. And he told me, don't worry. They, I'm sure they would have done something anyways. In this process of dehumanization, every veteran knows that the first person to become dehumanized is a soldier themselves. They're all used from day one to break people down. The process of sexual trauma begins at the point of recruitment, not at the point of basic training. Somehow this idea of uh, men are beings devoid of feelings and compassion and that women are weak and um, you know, just a ball of emotion is at the center of all this. Do we know how long a war in Iraq will last? Has there been any assessment for the American people of how much a war in Iraq will cost our economy? One of the main roles that the U.S. military has played in Iraq has been to ensure that U.S. war corporations make a killing off of that war. I'm now an Iraq war vet. I'm standing in a line of, with homeless people being served free food, and this is actually happening to me. This is actually happening to our Iraq-era war vets, and that I'm one of them, and I'm a casualty of that system. These are the consequences for sending young men and women to battle. These are the things that happen. I've been particularly moved by hearing so many of the testifiers describe their motives for going into the military, how deeply they wanted to do good and to serve their country and to help the Iraqi people. What I'd like to ask anyone who's witnessing this or anyone who's viewing this testimony is to imagine your loved ones um, put in such positions, your brothers, your sisters, your nieces, your nephews, and more importantly, and maybe most importantly, to be able to put ourselves in the Iraqi shoes 
who encountered these events every day and have for the last five years. They forget a million Iraqis have died. I want to take this time to apologize to the Iraqi people for the things that I helped to do and the, the actions that people in my unit and myself uh, did while I was there. Thank you. General Petraeus, you may not remember me, but you once led me. You're no longer a leader of men. You've exploited your troops for your own gain and have become just another cheerleader for this occupation policy that is destroying America. I would like to thank my fellow panelists and everyone who has testified. It has been the utmost honor, more honor than I ever gained from putting on a uniform to sit up here with the greatest patriots of American history. Thank you. They run up right behind me. I cannot die this way. No, I will not die this way. The Divide to Conquer, Gender and Sexuality in the Military panel explored institutional policies of discrimination in the military and its impact on service members and civilians, both on and off the battlefield. Margaret Stevens, former Army National Guard member. I just want to preface what I'm going to say by saying two things. First, there are women in this room right now who could be up here speaking, and they could probably do a better job than me. I could name some, but I won't. I know them personally. So if you're interested in hearing more stories, just look around and find out who some of the veterans are in here, and you can get a lot more information. Um, the second point is that um, any one of the panels that we've had over this entire weekend could deal with this issue, because if you want to talk about rules of engagement, you could talk about the engagement of Iraqi civilian women. If you want to talk about corporate pillaging and military contractors, you could talk about contracted sexual labor. So we don't have to think that the gender and sexuality panel has to be the panel where you talk about these issues, because they transcend into the, the core of the war itself, and um, I think that that's the point of the title of the panel. In any case, that said, Let's go back to the issues. Um, in particular, you know, I was at a club last year, probably shouldn't have been, but I was at a club last year in Virginia, and I shouldn't have really been because it was like an 18 and older club, so that meant the girls were like 18, right, and the guys were like 30. And um, so I see this guy, and I mean, he's attractive enough to me, and, um, you know, big, strong and everything, my type. And... Um, but then he has on the recruit, the military shirt, right? So he's a recruiter in this club full of like these 18 year old girls. And I'm like, man, and of course you put two and two together. It's so sick because you've got these big, strong guys in this club trying to recruit these young 18 year old girls into the military. And it, it's very clear, though it wasn't my experience, that the, the, the process of sexual trauma begins at the point of recruitment not at the point of basic training. Because for many of these young women, you know, their first sexual experience with a man, not sex, but sexual encounter with a man, for many is the recruiter, and the first strong man you meet, if you don't have a father figure, if you don't have brothers in your life. And that wasn't my experience. I joined with a good friend of mine, and it wasn't like that for us. We, we didn't join sort of in that sort of desperate state, but um, that is a reality, and I want you to keep that in your mind. In basic training, I did see there was a woman, uh, a young recruit, who was um, engaging in sexual, uh, whatever the word is, with one of the drill sergeants. And when we found that out, it was disgusting, and it was very demoralizing because it's like, man, we like that drill sergeant. He was cool. Why do you have to do that? And so it, it got exposed, and um, he never sort of tried to approach me or some of the other women and, and 
and hit on us, but the dynamics were there from the very beginning, depending on who you were and what your experiences were. But with men, by the time you were 18, you could be very gullible from the very beginning to have a sexual intercourse with, with your higher-ups, and it does start there. Um, in any case, it was a pretty smooth ride, and I was in the military. I joined in 97, and so I was in the New Jersey Army National Guard, and I was a medic always surrounded by women because, you know, medics. So I was always in a very woman-heavy field. And so we didn't have the same sort of experiences as women. You might be a mechanic, so you're one of, like, a 100 men in a unit. It's a different experience. It depends on what your MOS is. And so when 9-11 happened, our unit was called up to fight. Not to fight, but to do post-9-11 um, relief. And uh, at that moment... I just figured my life would change because you always knew with Persian Gulf, you knew that these guys had the Gulf War syndrome. And I said to myself, I said, I don't want to. The first thing when 9-11 happened was we're going to war. <laughs> like that was just common sense to me. There's no way this is going to happen and the U.S. isn't going to go combat occupation. I'm sorry. There's going to be an occupation. So, so what you also know, though, is that you can get pregnant. So then I say to myself, well, what happens if I get pregnant? Um... So then you say, well, should I get pregnant? Then I, maybe I don't have to go because I'll have a baby. But we'd have to be deployed in the next nine months for me to not have to go because if we get deployed a year from now, I still have to go anyway. So now I have a three-month-old baby that I can't stay with because I waited too long or I did it too quickly. This is the type of math that people had to do. And so for a lot of men, of course, you, you know, they're thinking, oh, you're a sellout or you're a punk or you join the military. Why are you going to get pregnant? You see, this is the tension that happened, and it happened from the very beginning. So I, I don't think it's important to go into my experience, but I just want you to know that many women did get pregnant and many women did end up having abortions and other women did have babies after 9-11. This started way before the occupation. You need to see how far back it goes. The entire process of war, this is what it does to people's bodies and to people's thinking. Um, who are these women? You know, think about the National Guard. These are people who ended up getting called out. These are mothers. These are grandmothers. So now you have guys at home saying, baby, I'll go. You stay. Let me go for you. And we know that that's not reality. That's not the way it works. When you get called up, you're the one that has to go. But in our society, there's that sort of macho, I'll protect you, baby, let me go. And that's not the reality. So now you've got these women going out there. And I can speak on behalf of many women. I can speak on behalf of a good friend of mine who was raped and there was no evidence. So that's a huge problem, that there's no evidence. And there's no evidence because from the beginning, you're not taken seriously. So when there's no evidence, you don't qualify for benefits. And you can't claim that you have PTSD because there's no documentation of the crime. And when you try to document the crime, you're coerced or you're told that you're a sellout. And other men who might feel you and want to be on your side are also coerced and made to feel like if they speak up, then they're turning against their own. That's psychological warfare against the entire population. That's not just against the women, because these young men have to live with that, too, deciding whether or not they want to be on the side of the victim or the victimizer, when, in fact, you guys are all in a situation where you're all being forced into an occupation that none of you are really happy about. So that's the way we need to understand this situation. That's the way we need to understand gender and sexuality. So then the question is, well, what happens if we have women in command? If we have women in command, will it solve the problem? If we have women in command, will that solve the problem? Well, I can also tell you that there are women who have had women in command, and they've been under more stress under those women in command than they have under men in command. So that doesn't necessarily solve the problem either. And just consider the fact that, you know, soon enough, we might have a woman in top command. And let's think about what that's going to do 
for this entire situation, for this entire occupation. You know, and there are people who are lobbying to say that women should have more uh, in the military, they should be higher up, they should have more power. Think also about whether or not that changes the nature of our situation and the occupation itself, and I'm not convinced that it does. But there are women who are trying to fight. There are women who are trying to speak out. And one very, very significant situation, of course, is Suzanne Swift, who tried to speak out and was immediately hushed. Immediately, that entire struggle was hushed. And she was just stationed over somewhere and, you know, her lip was buttoned. So think about the fact that the military is scared of it, out of its mind to have this panel right here. This panel is history because now you have women in combat. You have women in combat. They're not shooting, but you have women in combat. And they're so scared that this is going to get out. So once you understand that, then the next question becomes whether or not this is always going to happen. Does every combat mean that this is what has to happen with women if women decide to be in the military? I don't think so. I think it's only in the context of these types of genocidal wars. I think it's only in the context where already the reason you're fighting is not a good reason. But if it's a good reason, I'm not convinced it's going to be this type of sexual trauma and devastation. So those are the types of things I wanted you guys to think about as you listen to these very, very important panelists. Thank you. The voice of Margaret Stevens, former Army National Guard member from 97 to 04 and one of the founders of the organization Service Women's Action Network. Margaret Stevens is speaking as part of the Gender and Sexuality Panel uh, today at Winter Soldier. My name is Tanya Austin, and I am a U.S. Army veteran, but I am not here speaking on about my own story today. I am actually here to give a story of an incredibly strong and brave individual. Um, this is a story of a female in the Coast Guard who was raped and then discharged and punished for being raped. Um, I am, I've been lucky enough to meet this young woman and see the amazing things she has done to bring not only her story out, but the story of men and women who have been raped in the military. What we have up here is stopmilitaryrape.com, or .org, sorry. Um, and what's really cool about this website is it was this individual's way of telling her story and trying to make progress because the military didn't do anything to help her. So finally she decided, well, if the military won't help me, I'm gonna help me and everyone like me. Um, as you see there on the homepage, these are some really frightening statistics. 25% of women will be sexually assaulted on college campuses. 12% of women will be raped while in college. 28 to 60%, 66% of women in the military report sexual assault. The reason the number varies so much is military reports versus VA reports. Uh, it's a lot easier to tell someone at the VA that you've been sexually assaulted than it is to tell your own command, which is not right. And 27% of women are reported raped. And what's interesting about this statistic is if you report that you've been raped and no charges are brought against your rapist, you haven't been raped. You're not part of that statistic. Um, and unfortunately, for our, our military, this is something that happens way too often, is the cover-up of sexual assault, of rape. 
of individuals experiencing the worst from their comrades. So here is what they're currently doing about it. According to the Department of Defense's own statistics, 74 to 85% of soldiers convicted of rape or sexual assault leave the military with an honorable discharge, meaning rape conviction does not appear in their records anywhere. Only 2 to 3% of soldiers accused of rape are ever court-martialed, and only 5 to 6% of soldiers accused of domestic abuse are ever court-martialed. In fact, several multiple homicides have recently taken place on military bases that have not even been criminally prosecuted. The Department of Defense's definition of morale booster for male soldiers, female soldiers. Take as needed, disposed when finished, and continue serving with honor. Please remember that many suffer in silent shame and never forget what's going on. Now I'd like to tell um, this individual's particular story. And having experienced sexual uh, harassment in the military myself, this is kind of difficult, um, as it is for everyone on this panel up here. But our stories need to be told. We are often asked how we get started with Stop Military Rape, Military Rape Crisis Center. I am a veteran of the United States Coast Guard and a survivor of military sexual trauma. I was raped in May of 2006 by a fellow shipmate. I followed all the necessary steps, including report, reporting the assault and providing evidence, a confession letter written by my rapist. In August of 2006, I was informed that I'll be discharged. According to the Coast Guard Academy psychologist, surviving rape makes deployment uh, makes one in ineligible for worldwide deployment, and as a result, I can no longer serve in the Coast Guard. What follows was a nine-month battle with, between the Coast Guard and myself while I tried to keep my job and change the Coast Guard's unofficial policy that rape survivors should be allowed to serve in the Coast Guard. I was a female in my early 20s, brand new to the Coast Guard. I admit it, I did not know every Coast Guard policy or tried to know something beyond my E3 rank. All I know is that what was happening to me was not, was just not right. I felt powerless. I didn't know how to fight the military. I was taught how to fight with them, for them, but how can I fight for my rights to stay with them? Out of the need to vent and needing an outlet to express the horror I was experiencing as a result of being raped, I started an on-log blog on MySpace. I was not expecting much of it. I just wanted to let out all the pain in me and share with the public. I almost immediately started receiving emails from active duty military members and veterans alike, each wanting to share their story. Everybody's story was so different yet so similar. I received one email from an 18-year-old female who was raped two hours prior by a member of her command and was scared and had no one else to turn to. I received an email from a Coast Guard veteran who was raped 10 plus years ago while serving, and I was the first person he ever told. I started doing research online about military rape. I learned about Tailhook and read the brave story of Army Specialist Suzanne Swift. What was happening to me in the Coast Guard was very common and had been going on for a long time. I knew that I was in for the biggest battle of my life. I could not abandon my fellow men and women in uniform. 
Something's got to change. Stop Military Rape and the Military Rape Crisis Center was formed. We are the nation's largest support group for the survivors of military sexual trauma. In 2007, we assisted over 12,000 men and women of military sexual trauma and their families. We are starting to work with Congress to change the military policy of sexual assault. Every man and woman that volunteer to serve their country should have the right to serve without the fear of being sexually assaulted, harassed, and or raped. In addition, no one should be reprimanded or punished for reporting a crime that was done to them. May 30th is International Stop Military Rape Awareness Day. Write to your representatives, contact the media, do what we're doing now, and let them know that military rape is something we just can't stand for. This young woman is remarkable. Her story, powerful. And unfortunately, because of time, we can't tell her whole story. But every person up here has a story to tell. Every veteran out there, every active duty member that's sitting in this audience knows someone that has either been assaulted or raped or harassed. And that has got to change. The voice of Tanya Austin. StopMilitaryRape.org is the website where many of those stories can be found. You're listening to Pacifica's live broadcast of Winter Soldier 2008. Racism and dehumanization have shown many of their faces in the occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan. Our panelists will help to reveal the fact that making the enemy into something less than human is fundamental to the process of training one human being to cause harm to another. Nazis used the term Untermenschen, which translates with particular relevance to our panel today to the English word subhuman. We're all familiar with the occurrence in Vietnam of the term gook. In the Rwandan genocide, the Tutsi label for their victims, the Hutus, was cockroach. And I'm reminded of numerous references in Israel to the people of Palestine as rodents. It chills my blood to know how easily we, we can forget that those who we call enemies are humans. Please join me in thanking our panelists for reminding us that we are humans. And this is a great way and an honor. To remind us of that. Good morning. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Smith. I enlisted in the Army as an infantryman in September 1997. I served three years active duty in the 3rd Infantry Division and then enlisted for six further years in the Florida National Guard. I was a grenadier with Bravo Company, 2nd of the 124th Infantry, and was deployed to Camp Anaconda, Balad, Iraq, in early May 2003. I was honorably discharged in January 2004. I reside in Orlando, Florida, and was raised as a military brat. My father served two tours in Vietnam and is currently rated 100% disabled by the Veterans Administration due to PTSD and Agent Orange exposure. Upon deployment to Balad, my unit was primarily tasked with gate and perimeter security at Camp Anaconda, 
the largest of the enduring presence bases in Iraq. Providing security at the front gate, one of the daily rituals we were tasked with was clearing Iraqi nationals who came to work on a daily basis on post, doing such jobs as filling sandbags, clearing rubble and trash, etc. Um, these Iraqi nationals were paid a dollar a day and, a, and were given an MRE for lunch. They worked under extreme conditions of, of heat and dust, um, oftentimes 130 degree, degree temperature, and were always escorted by armed guards. Every morning, um, the Iraqis were, that wanted to come on post to work were herded into a barbed wire enclosure, many times too small for their number. Pushing and shoving um, often started fairly early in the morning. Um, you had several hundred uh, men gathered together, and they would oftentimes start pushing um, the men in the front into the barbed wire. And in order f um, to get them to stop doing that, uh, we often used physical force. In fact, physical force was used almost on a daily basis. Uh, this included shoving, um, butt-stroking the um, Iraqis who were in the front, uh, threatening them with bayonets, and there were several occasions when we actually locked and loaded our weapons and told them that if they didn't stop shoving and pushing each other that we were going to open fire. Um, one of our other um, responsibilities at the front gate was to search um, the several hundred dump trucks and semi-trailers that were coming on post every day. The dump trucks were also driven by Iraqi nationals. Um, we had one or two interpreters usually on duty with us, but inevitably there would be miscommunication. The Iraqis wouldn't understand what was happening. And on one day, apparently an Iraqi truck driver, a dump truck driver, um, didn't understand that he was supposed to stop and continued forward in his truck. And my team leader interpreted this as a hostile action, uh, ran over, yanked him out of the truck. The rest of the, the, uh, my team responded. Um, we basically beat the crap out of this guy, pushed him down in the dirt, detained him, roughed him up, and told him that he was not allowed to come on back on the post for at least a month. Um, this, this was his own, obviously his only livelihood, so I don't know what he did for the next month. Um, there was another incident where an Iraqi dump truck driver was out of his truck, and apparently he, he got excited about something, and he, he started to run by me. Uh, I clotheslined this driver, knocked him to the ground, and then realized that he was uh, running over to say something to his friend who was ahead in line in, in front of him. Um, I was congratulated for this by the rest of my unit and was told that this was exactly the way we should, be, we should behave and we, we should carry out our duty at the gate. Um, one of the other missions that we were occasionally tasked with was raiding houses in the local area, especially when we first arrived in country. 
Um, one of the houses that we first raided was supposedly the home of a former bath official. Um, it was the middle of the day when we raided this house. When we arrived in the neighborhood, we were told that we were going to try to force the front gate open to the house. But apparently, the um, armored cavalry unit that was with us um, had other plans in mind. They rolled over the front wall of the house, um, destroyed the vehicle that was inside. And uh, upon entry to the house, I was uh, second in, uh, in the stack of formation of troops that went through the gate. There was uh, an older female who was in the courtyard by this time, and she was screaming something unintelligible in Arabic. I, I didn't see her as a threat, so I continued on past her into the, into the building itself. Um, one of the soldiers behind me apparently thought that she was a threat, uh, butt-stroked her in the face, knocked her to the ground, and uh, someone after him apparently zip-tied her and took her out into the, into the front yard. Um, then we proceeded to ransack this house. Um, I was in the master bedroom. Uh, there was dressers and wardrobes. Um, wardrobes were locked. We, we pulled the doors off. Uh, we turned everything in the room upside down. We went through everything. Uh, personnel in my unit that were in the kitchen turned the refrigerator upside down. Uh, pulled the stove, uh, actually broke the stove, pulled it out of the wall, um, broke, the, broke the line to it. Um, after we searched through the house, uh, and we had everyone, including the children, zip-tied on the front lawn. Uh, apparently, someone in my chain of command realized that we had the wrong home. We were on the wrong street, that the home we were supposed to have raided was actually behind this house on another street. So we went over to that home and raided that house, um, actually, going through that gate um, of that home, uh, I actually almost fired on uh, a person that I believe was mentally disabled. He, he, he apparently he didn't understand what was going on. He was standing in the in um, a window um, directly in front of us, and in the initial first few seconds of going through the wall, I I, I actually thought that he was a threat. Uh, almost fired and then realized that there was something wrong with him and he just didn't realize what was happening. We searched through that home, um, detained the person that we were supposed to detain. And, you know, upon searching the home, we, came, we started coming across um, all this paperwork in his office and in his bedroom, and it, it looked to me like um, he was a, an algebra instructor maybe at a, the local high school, maybe at a local university, um, because there was just reams of stuff that was math problems. This guy is supposed to be a former bath official. We took him, um, put a sandbag over his head, loaded him on a truck, and we started back towards Camp Anaconda. Uh, he was actually on my vehicle with my squad, and on the way back to Camp Anaconda, it was about a 45-minute drive, my squad leader thought that it would be funny to pose, with a, a pose for a picture next to this guy, and he asked me to take a photo of him and this detainee, and I refused to do so. I, I didn't believe that that was the right thing to do. And upon uh, arrival back at our, our quarters, um, I was disciplined 
for quite some time for this, including physical punishment, uh, because I had disobeyed him in front of the rest of the squad. Um, the, really, the turning point for me um, in my experience in Iraq was an incident that occurred when I was off duty um, at night. Uh, there was a there was a platoon in my company who were how should I put this? They were the the the, the hardcore platoon. You know, every unit has one platoon that is more extreme than the rest. This platoon happened to have a squad that was on, uh, well, they, they called it an ambush, but really what it was is they, they were hiding out in the, in, uh, the farms in the surrounding uh, area outside the perimeter, and they were trying to detain and stop people who were out past curfew. Um, so they were out there one, one night, um, and apparently uh, a farmer uh, was on his property. I think it was about 3 o'clock in the morning, and... You know, electricity was um, intermittent, and he was out there trying, I think, trying to, to work on his farm, uh, work on a pump or something. They told him to halt and stop. He panicked and ran. Uh, they opened fire, and they, they killed this individual. Um, the next day, civil affairs came and spoke with us and said, as a company, and said, we are not going to pay any benefit to this family. They also informed us that his brother was a close ally of us, was work, had, up until this time had been working with us, and was a respected leader of the local community, and that this individual that we killed also had 14 children. The civil affairs officer suggested that we take up a collection and donate a dollar or two apiece to the family, and that he thought that that would go a long way in uh, helping to ease the family's suffering. Uh, there's 125 members of a, comp- of a rifle company, roughly, so you're talking about anywhere probably between $125 and $150. In reality, I don't think anyone donated any money. Um, on September 11th, 2003, I, uh, late, late uh, afternoon, early evening, I was assigned uh, guard tower duty on the perimeter facing a Wahhabist enclave of Balad. We all knew that this was a Wahhabi neighborhood. Osama bin Laden is a Wahhabist. Um, I witnessed a sustained shelling of this neighborhood that lasted well over an hour. I don't know if the neighborhood was evacuated prior to the shelling. I don't know if there were any casualties. All I know is that it was the only civilian area that I witnessed shell the entire time that I was at Balad. Oftentimes, uh, we would be called out on, as a quick reaction force to respond to incidents in the town of Balad. And on these patrols through the town, uh, my squad leader, uh, would oftentimes uh, entertain himself by shooting the local animals, including dogs um, that were tied up in people's front yards. Um, there was one occasion when he started shooting dogs. But the lieutenant came over the radio and said, Why, what, what's going on? Why are you firing? What's happening? And he you know, indicated that he was just shooting dogs. 
And my lieutenant replied back, well, that's okay, but just from now on, let me know that you're going to do that before you do it. And finally, uh, this is probably the hardest incident for me to talk about, so excuse me. Uh, one morning, a few months prior to me leaving, uh, I was on a, a post which was a, a last um, security post behind the front gate. In other words, I was manning a machine gun that was uh, there to ensure that if anyone managed to get past the front gate that they wouldn't actually get inside the post. It was very early in the morning and, and I was haggard and, and actually not in a very good mood. And uh, I saw a Humvee come through the gate and it was pulling a um, it was towing a blue mini pickup truck. Those are very common in Iraq. And I couldn't, from a distance, I couldn't really tell what was going on. And as they approached closer, um, it appeared that the pickup truck was riddled with bullets and, and shrapnel. Uh, I think one of the tires was flat. And as they pulled past me, there were uh, there was. Um, Apparently, what had happened, there was an, an attack on a convoy earlier that morning um, using this pickup truck. And as they pulled past me, I realized that the pickup truck was full of um, dead insurgents that had been killed in this attack. Uh, they had obviously been engaged with large caliber weapons, probably Mark 19s, 50 caliber. Um, there were several corpses that were decapitated. Um, they had large holes through their bodies. There was, I'll never forget this, there was a very young um, PFC, I believe. He was standing in the back of the pickup truck. And as they rolled by, he lifted one of the decapitated heads up in front of me. And he, he basically said, you know, we really, in, in much rougher language than this, we really screwed these guys up, didn't we? And there was another uh, enlisted member in the back of the truck with him. And they were, they were celebrating uh, on top of these bodies that were piled up in the back. Uh, you know, and these insurgents didn't appear to me to look like, you know, the hardened terrorist that everyone, you know, says that they, that they are. Uh, these were mostly teenage boys and young men looked like they were from the local community. Um, and finally, just to wrap things up, I, I want to take this time to apologize to the Iraqi people for um, the things that, that you know, I helped um, to do and the, the actions that, that people in my unit and myself uh, did while I was there. Thank you. That was, that was the voice of Jeffrey Smith, Army infantryman that uh, served in Balad, Iraq. He's receiving a standing ovation in this very emotional day here at Winter Soldier. Testimony continues now. My name is Mike Tott, and I served with the 716th MP Battalion in the 101st Airborne. I um, was deployed to Iraq in April of two oh, 2003 and returned home in April of 2004. For the first six months of my deployment, I, I served as a driver for a security vehicle for my command sergeant major and my lieutenant colonel. And for the last six months I served, I was put back in a line platoon with the 194th MP Company. I have some slides. This is a picture of me uh, 
at the Baghdad airport before the Saddam was torn off the building um, early on in the, in the, during the invasion. Um, can we go to the next slide, please? This is me in Babylon, um, er, again, early on in the deployment. Um, these are some ancient ruins, thousands of years old. Um, and, and this slide highlights the, the lack of um, respect that we had for, for the ancient culture and, and for the culture in Iraq. This is a slide of uh, U.S. soldiers walking roughshod over the ruins of Babylon. To, to the people of Iraq. Can you go to the next slide, please? It's a picture of me with a donkey. <laughs> and we can go to the next slide. This is me in Baghdad, in one of Saddam's palaces in Baghdad, also in the airport, um, pointing to my American flag, thinking to myself, Good job, and, and being very proud of, of my country at this point. This slide highlights the arrogance that I had at this point in my life. It displays the heightened sense of importance that I that I felt, and that many of my many of my unit felt. And it also permits us to be to do harm to the Iraqi people and treat them as second-class citizens. I have a few talking points here. I'm going to highlight that sense of, uh, of importance and also um, <clears throat> the general attitude towards the Iraqi people and my unit, and then I'm going to go into some specifics. Like I said, I, I worked with my command sergeant major often, and, and he would provide mission briefs and after-action reviews for every mission that we, we were on. During many of these mission briefs, the language that was used, such as haji, which is in Arabic a term of endearment, the military has turned that into a disempowering tool, a disempowering word, and it is equatable to some very racist and derogatory remarks from minority populations in this country. Sergeant Major, in one specific mission brief, said to the nine-person team that Haji is an obstacle. Do not let him get in our way meaning that if they drive in front of us, get them out of our way, drive through them. This language that was used was common practice. I often hear it from still being used in many members in my old unit. It was used as a tool to degrade and dehumanize these people. It also permitted ourselves to separate ourselves. It gave us permission to separate ourselves from the people of Iraq which served as a psychological protective factor should we be doing harm to those people. At one point in the deployment, when I was on a convoy just north of Baghdad, we pulled over to have an MRE refuel our trucks. And it was about a, a six-vehicle convoy. Oftentimes, the kids in their surrounding community would run up to us and, and say, thank you, thank you, and, and, and be very... Uh, Welcome, welcome us with warm arms. Um, and we didn't want that kind of attention from the kids for fear of their safety because we, were, we knew we were a targeted audience in that country. And this one incident, a kid was trying to cross a four-lane median highway and was struck by a vehicle going about 65. We, a number of us ran over there. I hopped in my truck and ran to, 
to stop traffic. A number of us, including my sergeant major, ran over there. And by the time he was walking back to his truck, which was about 30 seconds after he looked at the kid, said, he's gone, move out. And I wondered to myself, what would have happened if this was an American kid who was just struck? Um, Pre-deployment, the cultural competency training that we received can be best summed up in a sentence. Don't touch the people of Iraq's left hand. They wipe their ass with it. And that's what we got. Um, again, early on in the deployment, driving pulled over. The kids would run up to us and be very grateful that we're there. And so we'd raise our hands like this, and the kids would, the kids would uh, raise their hands like that too. And we'd try to get pictures of them doing that. So it looked like they're surrendering to us. And again, highlighting the second-class nature that we attitude that we took towards these people. Um, excuse me, this is. Um, my my friend here mentioned that every company has a platoon that that um, considers themselves hardcore or very professional and elite. And I want to say at this point that our entire company was very well managed, and we had some phenomenal leadership. My first sergeant was hardcore and and amazing, an amazing man, and I, I carry him give him the utmost respect to this day. We were very well disciplined. This next incident I'm about to describe was the day after we were engaged in an ambush where I was arm's length away from a man who was shot in the neck and died, um, fell to the street and, 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 and died. I had to lift him into my truck with my gunner pulled down from the turret and we, we brought him into our truck and and, and med tried to medevac him um, as a grenade blew up my, my left front tire and flattened it. I took about 15 minutes to get back to the hospital. At that point, he bled to death. The incident I'm about to describe is the day after, the night after that event. The um, Iraqi policemen, we were, okay, our mission was um, in part to run a jail in Karbala not for enemy prisoners of war, but just for the general population prison. These prisoners we brought into the, by the Iraqi police, and and then we were to show them through the processing um, and how we do things in America. <laughs> we weren't in charge necessarily of enemy prisoners of war, but on, on the night of October 17th in 2003, six people were brought in by the Iraqi police who claimed that these six were participants in the actions the night prior. Therefore, they were enemy prisoners of war due to coalition standards. When these people were brought in, they were appeared to be beaten already badly. They were lined up on the concrete wall, and they interlaced, they were, we were told, we told them to interlace their fingers, which is a form of control, because you can grab your middle finger and your index finger squeeze them together, and it's quite painful. Interlace their fingers, place their foreheads on the concrete wall, cross your ankles, and put your hands on top of your head so we can search you and process you in. They were tagged, they were searched, and they were also beaten. Not just by Americans, 
but by Bulgarian soldiers and by Polish soldiers, by Iraqi policemen and by me. I grabbed the man by the jaw and I looked him in the eye and I, I slammed his head up against the wall and I looked him again in the eye and said, you must have been the one that killed Grilly. And then I, he fell, I kicked him. An Iraqi policeman, probably the size of the biggest security man here with hands to match the size of a Kodiak, hit a guy in the side of the head about six times and I thought to myself, I'm, think, I'm looking at him and I laughed and I'm like, yeah, these, these guys are getting what they deserve. I never found out whether or not this all took place also in, in, in the presence of a, of a lieutenant, my lieutenant, with an earshot of, of many NCOs. I never found out what happened to these, these people, these six prisoners. I don't know whether they, where they went. I don't know anything about that. Um, and I'm up here today to speak on behalf of all the people who haven't returned home, who can't speak. This isn't just some isolated incident. This happened in the presence of NCOs, commissioned officers, and coalition forces, not only as participants, but also as witnesses. From the night before October 16th, October, uh, October 17th, the night of October 16th, my lieutenant colonel was also killed that night. My being up here displays my anger, both by, on multiple levels, by the Americans' behavior overseas, by our president's continuous rhetoric about Iraq being a success, about this country's citizens and apathy to this occupation. And this is why I'm here today as well. These events happen in our name, and each and every single one of you are responsible for this as well. I am very sorry for my actions, and I can't take back what I did. I ask the forgiveness of the people of Iraq and of my country and I will not enable this any further. General Petraeus, you may not remember me, but you once led me. You're no longer a leader of men. You've exploited your troops for your own gain and have become just another cheerleader for this occupation policy that is destroying America. That is the voice of Michael Todd. He served in Iraq from 2003 and 2004, winter soldier on Pacific Arabia. General Petraeus, you pinned this on me in Babylon in 2003 following the October 16th incident. I will no longer be a puppet for your personal gain and for your political career. tearing up his ribbons. His army commendation. 
Thank you. Thank you all for being here. My name is Camilo Mejia. I joined the military in 1995 as an infantryman. And I deployed to the Middle East in March of 03, first to Jordan and then to Iraq in April of that same year. The beginning of my friction with the chain of command in my unit began before we actually deployed to the Middle East when I made the decision that as an infantry squad leader, I was no longer going to physically punish the men under my command and that I would no longer yell at them, but that I would instead establish a relationship based on respect. And that didn't sit too well with my um, platoon leader or my platoon sergeant at the time because they felt like an infantry leader has to inject high levels of testosterone into his leadership style and that in order to get your men to follow you and to respect you, you have to lower them to the level of your boots and humiliate them. And I started by saying that because I, I want people to know that the dehumanization and the disrespect and the humiliation that we are bestowing upon the people of Iraq does not begin in Iraq. It's not the result. It's, it's not the result of people waking up one morning as monsters, but it's, 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 um, it's, it's part of the culture. It's part of the military culture. They, they train us that way. And um, given the environment that we find ourselves in, all kinds of things that under normal circumstances would seem impermissible and objectionable become basically the norm. Because of my, the change in my leadership style, I was transferred from the platoon that I deployed to the Middle East with, which was third platoon. I was transferred to second platoon, but I retained my, my position as a squad leader, so I was still in charge of an infantry squad. I remember that one of the, um, as a squad leader, I had two team leaders under my command, and one of the people who has served under my leadership in the first platoon that I served in, which was third platoon, got into um, a firefight. That platoon got into a firefight, and after the firefight, they, um, th when they left the area, they were being tailgated by this Iraqi, and he fired at him and hit him in the chest, and another firefight was triggered from that. And um, the man was not able to receive treatment for about two or three hours, and then he was medevaced from the area. About two weeks after that incident, I remember that they needed someone to drive the vehicle that this man had been in when he was shot because the relatives were at the gate and they wanted their, their, their car back. So they asked me to drive it because I was the only person around who knew how to drive a, a stick. So I drove the car back to the, uh, the ECP, the entry control point, and ran into this person who fired at him and who hit him in the chest who had been one of the team leaders under my command in third platoon and who had been a very good friend of mine. And he said, he's here. And I said, who's here? And he said, the man I shot. 
and he and I looked and indeed he was there and he had like a super like a scar on his chest and this person looked at me and he said I know it's messed up but I can't help feeling like I got cheated because that was my one confirmed kill and now he's here alive and he realized what he was saying was wrong but he couldn't help it he couldn't help feeling that way he couldn't help feeling that the fact that he did not take a human life actually reflected poorly on on him later during our deployment um my platoon was tasked with the uh, quick reaction force task. So we basically had to respond to any attacks that happened to any of the units operating in the area. And we received this call. Uh, the first platoon had actually encountered some resistance uh, during a raid. They had uh, kicked down a door and gone inside of a house and uh, taken chase after these two men. And then another one of our soldiers uh, went into the house after them and saw that there was a brother of the two men coming out with a, with an AK-47 and he shot him. So by the time we got there, there was really not much to be done other than secure the perimeter. And after that, we basically were tasked with um, transporting the two men who had been captured. I believe one was the cousin of the, the dead and the other one was the brother. And we were basically guarding these two men and we were guarding the body of the dead. And when we got to, um, to our base, we had to, to transfer the body from the five-ton truck that we had into a Humvee because the truck that we had was too big to, to fit through the gate of the hospital to, to get to the morgue. So they pulled the body by the feet and dropped it on the ground in front of the two relatives that were there and everyone began laughing. And the shroud came off and the, um, the same soldier who had been a team leader in my squad began laughing and he said, oh, they really screwed you up, didn't they? Of course, the language he used was much stronger, but don't worry, I won't say the word. And, um, and he just kept making fun of this incident and then he st stuck his hand in his cargo pocket and pulled out a disposable camera and threw it at someone and said, take a picture of me and this mother. And he started posing with, with the body. And I just could not conciliate the person that I had served with in Jordan and who had been so close to me and the person who was there basically posing with this dead Iraqi person in front of his family. You're listening to highlights from the second day of testimony from Winter Soldier, Iraq and Afghanistan, anchored by KPFA's Amy Allison and Aaron Glantz. We go back to the testimony of Camilo Mejia. The first mission that we had when we got to Iraq was at this place called Al-Assad and our job there was basically to, to run a, a prisoner of war camp and, and at this prisoner of war camp our job was basically to keep prisoners who had been deemed enemy combatants uh, sleep deprived for periods of up to 72 hours in order to quote unquote soften them up for interrogation 
And the way we did that was by yelling at them. So my first question to the, the people who were training us on how to do this was, you know, how do, how, how do they understand? I mean, they don't speak English. And he said, well, they're just like animals. They're just like dogs. If you keep yelling at them, it doesn't matter what language you're yelling at them in. They're going to get the point. If you yell at them, get up enough times, you know, just like a dog gets up, they'll get up. If you tell them to move left, eventually they'll get it and they'll move left. And they said, but that's not going to always work because they're so tired. By the way, they were hooded with sandbags and they were tied with uh, plastic restraints, barefoot and circled around with uh, concertina wire. So they were not only being deprived of sleep, but also of light and sense of space. And um, so the, the next thing that we did was to, um, to hit the wall next to them with a sledgehammer to create this explosion-like sound to scare them. And when that didn't work, the next step was to put a gun to their heads and to charge it as if to execute them. Basically, we were performing mock executions to, to scare this man. And every now and then that wouldn't work, so you would grab the person who was not obeying and put him in a chamber and hit the wall next to this person to basically drive him insane and get them to obey. Another time, I remember we were at a traffic control point and we had received reports of ambulances being used to uh, deliver explosives. So we were really close to the only, um, we were actually blocking the only road that led to the hospital, to the local hospital, and this ambulance came upon our traffic control point and they um, told us that we could not let the ambulance through. There was a pregnant woman who needed to get to the hospital, but um, they said, we don't know if that's a pregnant woman or if this is, you know, a, a, a van, you know, full of explosives and it's going to explode. So we basically turned it back. And I remember at the time I felt bad and I wanted to send a team to basically to search the van and to establish whether it was, there really was a pregnant woman. But I kept thinking of the images of the ambulance, ambulance exploding in the perimeter and killing a bunch of our people. So... I basically made the decision not to search the van and to just turn it away. Another time, we were again at a traffic control point and we uh, were attacked and we were in the middle of a firefight and then they stopped shooting at us and we began to assess the damage and to you know, collect our wounded and there were a lot of uh, Iraqi civilians who were killed. And from this car came a voice uh, that was calling me, Mr. Mr. And I approached the car, and again, we had this intel report saying that at traffic control points, you know, people will call you and say, you know, help me, help me, and then they'll shoot you or they'll, the, the vehicle will blow up. So when I'm approaching this car, and, and right after this firefight, and then after this happened, then they began shooting at us again. But as I approached this car, I saw that there was this man, this young man at the driver's seat and that there were two older gentlemen who were also wounded, one pretty badly, and who were saying, um, you know, help me, help me. And at the time, I could, all I could think about was that intel report saying, you know, these people are trying to kill you. So I basically had my rifle aimed at them and I was about to shoot him until somebody came and said, Sergeant, Sergeant, you know, they're they wounded, don't shoot at them. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's it's really... It's almost impossible to, to, to act upon your morality in a situation like that when you have been fed all this information that, you know, these people are out there to kill you. And what you do is you basically remove the humanity from them to make it easier to oppress them, to brutalize them, to beat them. 
And in doing so, you remove the humanity from yourself because you cannot act as a human being and do all of these things. And um, one last um, incident that I want to talk about was the first time that I opened fire on a human being, and this happened right after a protest. Uh, they were throwing grenades at us, and they said, you know, if anybody throws a grenade, you know, you open fire on them. So we saw this, this, this coming, and I saw this young man, uh, basically, you know, his arm was swinging, and he had a black object in his hand, which was indeed a grenade. And I remember seeing all of this through the uh, rear aperture of my M16 rifle sight, and I remember when we opened fire on him, and then I remember when two men came from the crowd and basically dragged them by his shoulders uh, back into the crowd after we killed them. And after that incident, I remember going into a room by myself and, and uh, counting the rounds that I had left in, in my, my magazine, and I had 19 rounds left, which meant that I had fired 11 rounds at this person, and, um, but yet I had no recollection of hitting him or him going down, him dropping, him dying. I just, there's this blank space in my memory, which is a blank space that I have for other experiences, like this time when this child was basically uh, riding in the passenger seat with his father, and we decapitated his father with a machine gun. And when we went down to the low ground to search for enemy wounded. I, I remember seeing this young person standing next to this body that was decapitated. And when I think about it, I cannot remember the expression on the child's face. I cannot remember that it was a child. I only know this because people told me later on that was the, the man's son, the man's young son who was standing next to the, the body. And it's because not only it's it's not enough to to dehumanize the enemy by means of your military background or training or the indoctrination or the heat and the fatigue and the intensity of the environment. But there are times when it is so hard to deal with these experiences that I suppose your, your own body, your own psyche, in order to protect you from these memories and in order to protect you from losing your humanity, erases certain memories that are too painful to deal with, that are too overwhelming to deal with. And... Um, whether it is to to punish the men in your squad or the men in your unit or to erase the face of a child whose father was decapitated next to him in a car at a traffic control point or whether it is to to pose next to a dead civilian or Iraqi or whoever, um, it, it is necessary to, to become dehumanized because war is dehumanizing and we have a whole new generation. We have over a million Iraqi dead. We have over five million Iraqis displaced. We have close to 4,000 dead. We have close to six, 60,000 injured, both by combat injuries and non-combat injuries coming back from this war. And that's not even counting the post-traumatic stress disorder and all the other psychological and emotional scars that our generation is bringing home with them. So all that just to say that War is dehumanizing a whole new generation of this country and destroying the people in the country of Iraq. In order for us to reclaim our humanity as a military and as a country, we demand the immediate and unconditional withdrawal of all troops from Iraq, care and benefits for all veterans, and reparations for the Iraqi people so they can rebuild their country on their terms. Thank you for standing with Iraq Veterans Against the War.
That's the voice of Camilo Mejia, the chair of the Board of Iraq Veterans Against the War, a former staff sergeant and a conscientious objector.